You're listening to Church at the Oaks podcast, where we exist to send disciple makers of Jesus by being disciple makers of Jesus. For more information about our church, such as service times, upcoming events, or how to join a group, please visit us at churchattheoaks.com. Pastor at Church of the Oaks. I haven't got a chance to meet you yet. I'd love to get to meet you. I see several of y'all are it's maybe your first time or one of your first times here. And uh, one of the fun things about getting to be in this room um, when, when uh, uh, campus is, is closed down is that uh, it's a lot easier to find each other. Um, and so my prayer for you and for me is that by the time you get out of here, you get to make some connections with some people because that's what a church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be like family. And so I uh, hope you get a chance to do that. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm excited. Uh, that we're a week out from Christmas. Um, I feel like, I don't know, it's, I don't know how, how, how it's going for you, but I feel like I've been waiting um, an exceedingly long time to start to get to the celebrations. I feel like I've been preparing and preparing and decorating and pl- like all the, and oh my goodness, I just want to do the thing now. All right. Let's just do Christmas. Um, and so that's, that's where I'm at. Like we're a week out and some of that, some of that stresses you out. Um, you have a lot left to do uh, in the next uh, seven days before you get to, to Christmas. And then others of you are, are uh, where I'm at. I mean, you're just excited and borderlining uh, on relieved. And so when we come to Christmas, there's, there's so many things that we uh, could talk about, should talk about. Um, I love the fact that like our church is a church that just lifts up the name of Jesus continually all year long. Um, but specifically around the season of Christmas, it's just all about the person of Jesus Christ. Like, I, I think um, it's interesting when we get to start singing Christmas songs here in, in Oaks and, and uh, listening to Christmas songs. Some of y'all start listening to Christmas stuff like in July. That should be illegal. Um, those of you who do that, it's weird. Uh, but those of us who start like after Thanksgiving, like normal people, we start listening to these songs. There's a lot of like deep, rich theology in a lot of our, our Christmas songs, which is powerful. Some of them um, less so, but some of them are these beautifully rich, uh, you know, hymnody of, of who the person of Jesus is, the work that um, he came to accomplish. And it's interesting, you start listening to those and, and you hear a lot of the names of Jesus. We sing about Jesus being Emmanuel, right? Like God with us. We, we sing uh, about like the, the Savior being born. We sing about um, Christ. We sing about him as Lord, right? But every once in a while, you'll, you'll also hear him referred to as King, the passage that we get to this morning um, during our, our whole story series is, is centered around this idea of kingship. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a, we're getting to the point in the Old Testament when Israel decides that they want a king that's separate from God himself. They want a king that looks like everybody else. And we see how that goes. Then we see God moving forward to, to bring about the kind of king, not that people wanted, but the kind that they needed which ultimately culminates in the person of Jesus. Spoiler alert, right? So this morning, as we jump into our time in the Word, I want us like thinking about um, Jesus as King. And the question that's going to keep coming up and like, like resonating in my mind and hopefully in yours as well is who is my King? Not stated, not like verbally agreed upon, but like practically right now in my life, who or what is King over my life? All right? In the book of Matthew, um, the, the gospel writer Matthew like, is, is fixated on this idea of kingship. 
He's talking about king. He's talking about Jesus being king. He's talking about the kingdom the whole way through. Like no other book of the Bible focuses on this idea more than the book of Matthew. And this is how he tells the story of, uh, of, of Jesus' birth. In Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Just pause right there. Does it ever bother you when your manger scene has the wise men in it? That bothers some of y'all? Right. It's like, so this is after, like, Jesus has been born already, and they're wise men. They're right, it's wise men from the east. They're coming to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. All right, so when Herod, the, the like physical, like normal king, heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, and he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, Bethlehem, Judea, for so it's written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, a king, who will shepherd my people Israel. There's something ingrained in our culture that recoils at this idea of a king. Like I was, uh, I was watching that um, there's a like docu series thing called Welcome to Wrexham. Um, a lot of language in that show. I don't know if you've watched. It's this a TV show where uh, like Ryan Reynolds and uh, Rob McElhenney like bought a f- British football club for some reason, and it's a mess, right? So I started season two, and they're, they're, the king of England is going to come and visit. So they have to have like lessons and manners and stuff, which I would too. I don't like, I'm from Alabama. I don't know how to meet kings, all right? And so they're having to like, like figure out how to sit and stand and how to shake hands and whatever. But one of the things they had to learn to do was how to bow appropriately to the king. And so they're kind of trying to practice. And Rob McElhinney, he's just full send American, right? He's like, I hate this. You know, and they stop and talk about like, what, why? What's it? I mean, he's like, I just don't like the idea of bowing to somebody. And that like hit. And I was like, mm-hmm, yeah, America. You know, like that's, there's something in our, our culture that just, that this is, we feel a little pushback at the idea of being under that kind of authority. The Bible, however, the Bible makes a case that all of us, Um, Whether you realize it or not, all of us have subjected ourselves to one authority, one ruler, one king, or another. Whether you may you may feel like you have no authority, or you may feel like you're getting to you know just do whatever you want, but there's some things, there's some some ideals, there's some like I don't there could be anything like that you've subjected yourself and you're living your life subservient to that or them. For some of you, it may just be yourself. That your ends, your comfort, your security, you are king and everything around you, including the other people around you, are supposed to be subservient to you as king. For others of you, it's your career. And you're not really sure why, but there's something in you that drives you so hard to achieve these accolades and to achieve a little bit more (laughs) in your career path that everything else becomes subservient to that. Some of us, it can be our kids, or we're like, all right, now I've got them. I've got to do everything I can to serve and lift up this new little baby king, right? It could be anything. Because our careers, is our future, it's our dating relationships. But a lot of us, we find ourselves living our lives for something or someone. And that's what the scripture has to say. Like, you have a king. Whether you realize it or not, where you've like, you know, and wherever you've uh, like mentally agreed to it, like you have a king. Something or some things are ruling the, you this morning. That's just the picture of scripture. 
Now, last week, uh, Coleman walked us through the period of Judges, and there's these 350 years in the period of Judges where it says that they had no king. In Judges 21, 25, it says the people of Israel, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And then because of that, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's how the book of Judges concludes. It, it concludes, okay, there's no king in Israel. Everybody's just doing whatever they think is right. Everybody's just kind of running amok, doing whatever they think they ought to do. But there's supposed to be a king in Israel. There's supposed to be a king over God's people. And it's not a, it's a, a human person. It's supposed to be the Lord himself. There's supposed to be a people who are dedicated themselves to following the Lord with their whole heart, with their whole mind, and teaching their kids to do the same thing, this generational people of God who are following the Lord as king. Instead, they begin to follow themselves. So you move over to the book of 1 Samuel, and God raises up a God named Samuel. When you introduce Samuel, Samuel functions in Scripture as really like the last judge and the first prophet. He's this bridge of a person that goes from the, he's the last judge from that era moving into being the first prophet. If you're familiar with Scripture, there's you got judges and there's a whole lot of prophets that come after that. Samuel's the first of those. And so his job as a first prophet is to declare the word of the Lord and strive to lead Israel back towards God. That's what he's doing. Like that's his whole life's thrust. But the people of Israel did not want to be led to God. They wanted to have somebody else over them. Samuel begins to grow old. There's nobody to replace him. So one day the elders come to him in 1 Samuel 8 verses 4 through 9. I won't read that whole chunk to you. But basically they come and they say, listen, your kids are not going to lead us as well as you have. So we need you to give us a king. Right, we, like we, we need, like it's time. We want a king like everybody else. In verse, uh, verse five, behold, you are old. Your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. It talks about how Samuel, this is infuriates Samuel. He's like, no, like the Lord is supposed to be your king. You don't need somebody beyond him. You just need him. And they're like, no, that's not what we're going to do. We want you to set us up a king. We don't want to have to follow the Lord. We want somebody else to lead us, to fight our battles for us, to go before us, to provide for us, to like achieve our security for us. We want somebody else to do that. So Samuel, he warns me, he says, this is not God's will. The Lord's supposed to be enough for you. They don't want to hear it. First Samuel 8, 19 says, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, there will be a king over us, that we may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, this is what God said. He said, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go, and every man to his city. In that previous passage, like God kind of comforts Samuel in this and says, listen, they're not rejecting you, man. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting my lordship over their life. So give them what they're asking for. Let them have it. This was not best, all right? This was not like the ideal scenario. This is not what God would have had for them. This was not best. It's not in their best interest, but it was what they were determined to have. So God granted it. And that still happens with me and you, where there's some things that are not best, that are not God's will for us, that, that are not in our best interest, but it's what we like just feel determined to have. I want to look like everybody else. I want to get to have the same kind of life that they have. I want to get to have the same kind of roles and relationships. I want to have the same as all the other nations. I want to have what I want to have, and we're determined to get it. And so a lot of times, God grants it. 
We chase after it's these things in our lives. We long for things that everybody else longs for. When we start being ruled by those and living our lives for those, apart from the Lord, having like no interest in him, and Jesus, like the, the, the God can stay over here in this category and he can rule like our spiritual lives, but when it comes to the rest of all of it, no, 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 I need a different king because I want to look like everybody else. And a lot of times, even though that is not best for us, God grants that. When we start seeking hope and peace and joy and fulfillment and purpose anywhere but in him, like he lets you seek that which is terrifying because God who knows what is best for me, who wants to be the king, like Lord of my life, right? Who is like, I've trusted as savior who I'm supposed to be following after. He will let me chase after things that will lead me to waste my life. He will let me gain the whole world and forfeit my soul. He'll let you have another king. They wanted another king that looked like everybody else. They wanted to look like the rest of them. And so they got one. God leads Samuel to this guy named Saul, and Saul, like, looks the part, you know? Like, Saul, I mean, it just, well, I'll just read it to you. First, first Samuel 9, verse 1, it says, All right, there's a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeor, son of Bacorath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite. It was a man of wealth. Got a rich daddy, all right? Verse 2 says, And he had a son whose name was Saul, and he was a handsome young man. There wasn't a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he which is a statement, all right? Like, you got a few million people and you're the most handsome man out of all of them. Like, okay, go Saul, all right? So, that not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From, from his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any other people. This is a mountain of a guy, you know? He's got the rich dad, got all the backing, right? You know, he's, he's the guy. You know, like, he's the guy that's gonna go into politics and, you know, he's, the same kind of thing happens now, all right? But Saul, Saul did not have God's heart, Saul looked the part, but he didn't have God's heart. He wasn't following the Lord. There was nothing in him that was about it. In verse 3, 1 Samuel 9, it, it starts off with the account of Saul. begins with that, that he'd, he'd lost his dad's donkeys. Out of the gate, like this is the little foreshadowing here. Saul's a bad shepherd, all right? Out of the gate, Saul's a bad shepherd. He's living five miles from Samuel. I'll let you read all this by yourself later, right? He's living five miles from Samuel, has never heard of the guy. All right, Samuel's the prophet over the nation of Israel. He's like leading the people towards the Lord. Samuel, like Saul has never heard of him. He demonstrates no awareness of God. He demonstrates no awareness of the Lord's principles, no inclination towards following God whatsoever. But he is the kind of guy, the kind of king they wanted. You and I, sometimes intentionally and sometimes accidentally, find ourselves following kings who have no heart for the Lord, have only their best interest in mind, sometimes only because that's what everyone else is doing. If you're a Christian in the room, that happens to you. Like the, you, you want the Lord, you want God to be on the throne of your life, right? And sometimes some other stuff starts creeping up and like, like infringing on the, that lordship and you start following some other stuff. If you're not a Christian in the room yet, like you haven't trusted, like, Jesus says, Lord, if you're alive, you haven't trusted him as Savior and Lord, then there's some other things that are ruling you. And I don't think you've chosen them intentionally. I think you've chosen them because that's just what everybody else around you follows, and you're following it too. That's what happens here. They're like, I want a guy that stands head and shoulders above everybody else, who looks like he can fight my battles for me. I'm going to find security in that guy, even though he has no inclination towards the Lord whatsoever. And they get exactly what they want. In 1 Samuel 10, 
uh, they try to anoint Saul king. It's just hilarious of Saul's nature, all right? So Samuel calls all the people together, and he said, look, <laughs> in verse 18 of 1 Samuel 10, it says, uh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. Like, that's, that's God. Like, I did that. I brought Israel out of Egypt. Second, I brought you from the hands of the Egyptians and from all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you've rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. You've rejected your king, right? And have said to us, set a king over us. So now therefore present yourselves for the Lord and by your tribes and by your thousands. As they all gather together, they start casting lots and they're like drawing, okay, let's get, a, let's get the, the tribe and then we'll get the clan, then we'll get the family. And they're going down through it and it lands on Saul. Like they're, they're, but they can't find him. They're casting lots and they're like, into, like by lot, like this is the guy that we're supposed to anoint king. Like the Lord's in that, right? <laughs> and they can't find him. So they said in verse 22, they inquired the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, like God has to tell him where he's at. Behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. That's Saul's heart. Saul's heart's a coward. Saul may look the part, that king may look like he's going to be able to go out and fight the battles, that he's going to be able to lead the people, but his heart is rotten. His heart is a heart of fear. A lot of your kings are too. So they ran and they took him from there. And when he had stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, how you like him? There's none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. This is the guy they're willing to follow, hiding in the baggage. Won't step up, can't do nothing. I mean, like, see his nature, right? That's the one that they're willing to follow. A weak, ignorant, powerless shadow of what they had in the Lord. And they're ready to run. Looked great. So do the kings that I place in my life. But they can't do nothing for me. He reminds the people right after this. He reminds the people of all the rights and duties of, of what a king should be. And then it comes out of Deuteronomy 17. It says, this, this is what a king's supposed to do. In Deuteronomy 17, it says, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall, listen to this, write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. All right, so if you're going to be king over the people of Israel, you're supposed to sit down and write yourself a copy of the, of, of the Torah, just by hand. Just sit there, write it yourself. I don't know if you ever tried to do that. That's going to take a minute, right? If you're sitting there, like, copying a copy of the first five books of the Bible for yourself, like, approved by the Levitical priests, like, can't be any error in it, or they literally burn it, right? Like, it's got to be this perfect transcription of the Word of God. you got to know it. That's what the king's supposed to be like. Not somebody who's head and shoulders over but somebody who knows the Lord and his word intimately. And it says in verse 19, it shall be with him and the, he shall read it in all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, not hide in the baggage, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. They may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or the left, so he may continue to live long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. That's what the king's supposed to do. Know the Lord and lead the people to follow him. That's not who they picked. I'll ask you again, who's your king? What's ruling you? Because this is, this is what we need. This is how we need to be led. But I think the things we choose this in that. I got a king like everybody else. 
We may not have a little king, but we all have masters. I don't know what the king in your life is. But I know that when I start looking for something to follow and something to chase after, um, that doesn't sound like this. Anything that I chase after apart from the Lord, I know that it leads to disastrous effects, which is exactly what happens. The king, Saul, proved to be ignorant and brash and impulsive and under it all still a coward. And he blows it almost immediately. By 1 Samuel 15, God is declaring through Samuel that Saul's out. It's like he made it like four chapters. I mean, this, this did not go well, went downhill real fast, same as it does for all of us. Then he says, this next time though, he's like, right, I gave you the king you wanted. Now I'm going to give you the king you needed. He switches it. So he sends Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint someone, Samuel doesn't know who, to anoint someone as the next king, all right? And so they do the thing, they have like this parade of brothers. So the first oldest brother comes in, big old guy, looks like Saul, beautiful, right? And God's like, mm -mm, not him. And then God says this in 1 Samuel 16, 7, he says, Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. A man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God's not concerned about how glittery the ruler looks. He's not concerned like how, <laughs> uh, how impressive it is. I think me and you chase a lot of things that are really impressive. It's at the end of the day, like all that matters is the heart of this leader, the heart of this ruler, the heart of this king. So one of the Jesse's sons after another passes by until they've gotten all the way down to the youngest, the least like of all of them. And they're saying, it's not somebody else. And dad says, yeah, I got one more as the youngest one. He's out in the field keeping the sheep. He's a good shepherd, right? See that? That's fun. It was the youngest the least, the shortest, right? All you short guys out there, look, let's go, you know? Like, the youngest, the least, the shortest that God chose to be king. It's not the one that they expected. It was the king that they needed, a man after God's own heart. Paul tells the story this way in Acts 13. Paul stands up in Antioch, and he stands up, he's motioning with his hands, and he's saying, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen up. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. With uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an He's like, look at the magnitude of what the Lord did. He said, all it took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I've found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. You and I don't need some king or some ruler or something to chase after that doesn't have the heart of the Lord. We need a king like that, like a, a God, like a, a, a king, a, a leader, a ruler, like a, a, that has the heart of the Lord, who would lead us in that direction, like towards the Lord. So God installs David, saws him as king, and there's this whole like long situation. Before any of that happens, like David's anointed as king right there that day, and it's kind of kept secret. 
Pretty soon there's a battle that's, that comes up. The Philistines have come to battle against the Israelites. There's, they're both camped up on each side of this valley, right? There's this dry riverbed between them. And this guy walks out, uh, the champion of the Philistines, and he walks out, his name Goliath, and he says, who among you would come and fight me? It's kind of a representative warfare thing. Instead of all, everybody going at it, why don't you just one-on-one, anybody who would come and stand up against me, we'll see who wins. That'll be the victor. For day after day after day, like Goliath's coming out and saying, what? Like he's just like mocking them. Like how, I thought you had this great God who could do all these great things. I thought you had this God who could conquer anything and conquer nations. Like why, where's he at? Why are you so afraid? If you've got a God like that, surely you shouldn't have to be afraid. Come on, let's go. Let's see what he's got. He's mocking the Lord. He's mocking the people of God. Like, and no one's doing anything about it. David's sent over by his dad to check on things and shows up and hears it and is immediately enraged about this. Like, he's like, this, something has to be done about this. Surely one of you guys is going to do something about this, right? Like, the older brother's there. He's huge. Like, get him. Let's go. Saul's head and shoulder taller than anybody else. He's there. He's not going. Just allowing the Lord to be mocked, allowing, like, the, the actual king to be mocked, and David's not standing for it. And so since no one was willing, David stepped up himself to go and be the champion, to go and face the insurmountable, to risk his life for the name and the glory of God and the good of the people. Who does that sound like? You know, we we all love the story of David and Goliath because we think we're David. Like, I'm going to go fight my giants. No, you're not. You're the sorry people up on the hillside. All right, that's who I am. I'm the guy that's like willing to let anybody go down and be champion for me against the stuff that I face. I'm up on the hillside. You're up on the hillside with me, all right? We're looking for somebody, anybody else to help us find the security and the comfort and the financial peace and good kids who are great at things. Like we'll chase any, we'll let anybody go before us to accomplish all that. We're the people on the hillside who are facing things that are insurmountable. More than any of that, Every single one of us is up on the hillside of eternity looking down at our insurmountable sea of sin that has distanced us from the God, like from the God that we were made for. We're seeing like this death that awaits us, this punishment for our sin. Like we're like, there's, I don't know how to get around that. And so we put a God of like moralism on top of it. And if I just follow enough rules and act good enough for a while, like maybe that'll work out. We send anybody down there to be champion for us. Those aren't the kings you need. We're the people up on the hill, afraid and immobilized, needing somebody else to do what we aren't able to do. So David walks down into the valley, got his sling with him. Right? They offered him all of Saul's armor, weighed like 100 pounds, and he's like, I'm like 135 soaking wet, man. I'm good. Right? Leaves all that behind. He's just got a sling. And while he's walking down, he picks up a couple of smooth stones. Goliath sees who uh, Israel has sent and he's offended. <laughs> like, he like wanted to have a good fight here, right? Like he sees his kid down here and he's like, this isn't right. Like, I mean, he's mad. He's like, how dare you send something like that from me? Then David speaks. First Samuel 17, 45, David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I've come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts 
the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I'm going to strike you down. I'm going to cut off your head. I'm going to give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day, the birds of the air, and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Okay. Like, you know, like Goliath's all mad or whatever. And David's like, I'm going to murder you and everyone. Not because I can, because I want you and everybody else here to know there's a God in Israel. My God is going to defeat you. Watch. And he puts his little stone in his little sling and he starts spinning. You're the confidence in the Lord. It's not a confidence in David. It's not a confidence in the army. It's not a confidence in any other champion or any other thing. It's just... There's one who is able, that his full confidence is only in the Lord in this very present situation, not just for eternity or something, but like in this very specific, like face-to-face interaction, he's confident that the Lord can overcome, that the Lord will be victorious, that the Lord's will shall be done. And the day-to-day things that you and I face in the same way of eternity, like the Lord is able or he isn't. You can trust in the Lord or you can trust in whatever else, but one of those things is going to come through. David shows up and he's like, I think he's able. Right here, right now, me and you, I think he's able. In the things that you're facing when you walk out of here, do you, are you trusting eyeball to eyeball the stuff that you're up against? Are you trusting that he's able? Or are you trusting something else? Who's your king? Verse 48. So the Philistine arose and came near and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, struck the Philistine on his forehead. Stone sank into his forehead. He fell on his face on the ground. It's like, well, that was easy. <laughs> you know, like, I think about that kind of stuff. I think about the kind of stuff I face, the kind of stuff that I'm afraid of, the kind of stuff I can't imagine being pulled off. And then I, I see myself consistently trying to overcome those things on my own. I see myself in my own strength, in my own power, trying to overcome sin in my life. I see myself in my own power trying to do the things that we need to do as a church to see Oaks not just get started well, but to get permanent. And I'm running around trying to figure it out like on my own. I'm not the king. I'm not able to do all that. And you're not either. When the Lord shows up, the Lord works. The Lord can take out every enemy. David was a man after God's own heart. Israel didn't have the heart of God. Saul didn't have the heart of God. David, he's different. His heart was for the Lord, but not perfectly and not forever. David was a man after God's own heart, but like he's installed as king and you read the story. If you keep going forward, you see David, like David falling into sin and David falling short. Like David's not perfect. He's just like another guy. Yeah, he had heart for the Lord, but he's an imperfect king. He's a temporary king. God had given his people a man after their own heart. Like that's how Acts 13 put it, right? But he's not forever and he's not perfect. It's, It's interesting, like because of this heart that David had, God makes this covenant with him. In 2 Samuel 7, 16, it says, In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. It says, Your throne shall be established forever. 
How? David's just a guy. Like, he's going to die like everybody else. He's not a perfect king. Like, how, how is that going to happen? Remember, in Genesis chapter 3, God promised Adam and Eve that one from their seed will crush the head of the enemy, right? It's Genesis 3. If you've been around this series, in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars and all the nations would be blessed through him, right? Genesis 17, God reiterates that promise by declaring that kings are going to come through Abraham. In Genesis 49, Jacob blesses his son Judah by declaring the scepter shall not depart from Judah, which is uh, Judah is going to be the royal line of Israel. Here in 2 Samuel, God's declaring that this shepherd king, David, in born in Bethlehem from the tribe of Judah will have an everlasting throne and kingdom. It's all one promise. It's all one story. So we finally see the king that Israel needs with the heart for the Lord, as imperfect as he is, as temporary as he's going to be, beginning to fulfill that promise that was made all the way back in the garden. How is this going to happen? How is God going to pull this off? How is God going to build this ark all the way across from Genesis 3 to today, to you and me? Seems like David's a key figure in that, right? It's finally a king after God's own heart. But how do we go from here? Isaiah chapter 11 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what, he's, what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. As great of a king as David was, he wasn't enough and he wasn't forever. How could God possibly fulfill all those prophecies, all those promises, put all those broken pieces back together? Matthew opens up his gospel account. We read Matthew earlier, right, at the beginning? Matthew opens up his gospel account by finishing the connection. Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's one that's from the a shoot from the stump of Jesse who's going to rule with righteousness, a king who's going to come, who's going to reign forever, a king who's going to reign perfectly, who wasn't going to fall to sin, who wasn't going to die one day and like never be like he was going to be this perfect and permanent king that people of God need. Jesus is the new and better David. Jesus is the new and better king. And when you and I are deciding what we're going to hold our lives up to, who we're going to follow in our lives, it's not some physical king or whatever. Like it's, it's, it's either Jesus or not. That's what it comes down to. There is no other alternative. It's, it's either Jesus is king over my life or something else, someone else is. Who's your king? Practically in the day-to-day, like the stuff that you're facing right now, who's the king that you're in, like, trusting yourself to? When it comes to your security and your peace and your, pay, your joy, like, like who's the king that you're trusting to go before you and fight those battles and provide that for you? Who's your king? Because it's either him or it's not. And I just need you to hear this. If Jesus is not your king, then you're not his servant. Jesus is not your king, then you're not following him. You're following some other king. That means you're not a part of his kingdom. And I just need you to recognize that. Like if if you're not a part of his kingdom, if you're not a follower of Jesus, 
And you also don't get the, the benefit, the joy, the salvation of Jesus. Jesus is the king who sacrificed his life on a cross to pay for my sin, like gave up his life and substitute for all of my sin, right? And if I, he's not my king, if I haven't trusted him as king, if I'm not following him as king, then I also haven't trusted him as savior. Who's your king? Christmas is the fulfillment of this promise. Like I, I, I was so excited about getting to this text the week before Christmas. Christmas is the fulfillment of the promise that was first uttered in the garden, that was sustained in Noah, clarified to Abraham. It was kept true through captivity and slavery and exodus and wandering. It was held like all, through, all the way through the dark days of judges and the kings. It's promised to David. And finally and fully fulfilled in another little boy, also born in Bethlehem in Judah, Jesus Christ. Our band's come and lead us in a time of response. And I just, I just want to ask you one more time, like, Who's your king? If you're a Christian in the room, like it's, it's, you've, if you've trusted your life to Jesus, I just want to ask, is there anything else creeping up on the throne of your life? And I just want to give you some space right there where you are to do something about that. Just confess that to the Lord. Like, God, I, I, I've, I've been trusting some other stuff and chasing some other things. God, I, I want you to rule and reign in my life. Like, just forgive me. Step out of that stuff and follow Jesus. And if you're in the room this morning and you're not a Christian yet, <laughs> you have the opportunity like, to, to trust and follow a king that can come through for you, who can fight battles, who can overcome and has overcome everything that needs to be overcome for you. If you want to make him your king, he's not going to force it on you. The people of Israel, like they wanted a king to look like everybody else. They wanted to look like everybody else. And he granted that. He said, this is not best for you, but I'm not going to force myself on you. If you want to chase that, chase it. If you want to come under my authority, my goodness and my grace, my love, like Blake talked about earlier, right? Then come. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, this is Jesus. He says, come to me, all of you who are just laboring and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As this good and benevolent king, you come to me with all of your trash, and I will give you rest. He implores you, he like, challenges you, calls you, says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke of the things that you've been chasing around, the yoke of those other kings is not light. It's heavy. When I get to sit face to face with people and just talk about that, I can see the weight in our eyes with all the stuff that we've put on the throne. And Jesus says, just come. Come to me, like all of you who are weary and heavy laden. And I'll, just, I'll give you rest. If you just let me be your king. He's like, I'm the kind of king that lays down my life for you, that gives you what you actually need, who can sustain, who can provide for this life and eternity. The stuff you face right now and the stuff you're going to face then. So I got you. If you want me to be your king. Who's your king? If it's not Jesus... He says, come. Our next step seems going to be back there in the back, and that's what they're there for. For whatever it is, as we respond to the Lord, is what he's doing in our lives. Like, come. If you're a Christian in the room and you've let some other stuff creep up on the throne of your life, I think it's a really powerful thing to go back there and talk with somebody and just say, hey, would you pray for me? I've been, I've been all about my career right now. Like, 
I just, I just need to talk to somebody about that. I just want to pray. Just let them pray for you to come back to your seat. I know it's a small space. I know somebody's going to see it. I don't think Jesus cares. Some of you are in the room and you're like, man, I've, I've, I know who's the king in my life. And it's not Jesus. And if you're tired, if you're weary, if you're heavy laden, you want to set that down, come to Jesus. Go okay, take one of those folks back there next steps by the hand and just say, listen, um, I, need to, I need to figure out what it means to trust Jesus as my Savior and Lord. Can we talk? I'd love to walk with, that, walk with you through that. If there's anything else going on that you want to pray about, they're, they're, those folks are a team to pray. Like That's what they're there for. They're ready to pray for you. Last week, we had people stacked up, like at Next Steps, get to pray, pray for these stuff. People are trusting Christ. People are like setting down things. People are stepping into different roles. It was a powerful, beautiful thing. That's what they're there for. The only thing that's inappropriate for us is for the king to walk into the room and call us and us to stay seated, stay quiet, and choose something else. Who's your king? Let me pray for you. Father, I'm grateful for uh, the fact that, um, that despite the kind of kings that we've chosen to follow, of all varieties and all different things, all this, this stuff that has no, no ability to save. You still came. You still came for us. You still came for the nations. You, in your great love, you came. To be the king, not that we asked for, but the king that we needed. So Lord, my prayer for each and every one of us in the room is this morning that we would place ourselves under your kingship, under your lordship. We would trust and follow in you. For every one of my friends in the room who's a Christian already, God, I pray that this morning that they would move some things, some clutter off the throne and put you at the center of their life, follow you hard. I pray for my friends in the room who aren't Christians yet. They've been following all kinds of stuff their whole life. I pray that today would be the day that they would set those things down and they would come running to you, the King who loves them. God, I pray that you would do eternal things these next few minutes together as we respond. Move in us. Draw us back to yourself. It's your son's name I pray. Amen and amen. Why don't you stand with us? Next step is open. We worship how you need to. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. For more sermons like this, you can give us a follow at Spotify or Apple Music. If you want more information about our church, you can check us out at churchattheoaks.com. Church, you are sent.